So after Easter, uh, Keith and I decided we wanted to do a sermon series on the mystery of Jesus in the Gospel of John. It would just give us a chance to look at some of the more mysterious parts of the Gospel of John that aren't in the other Gospels. It's not a sermon series on the Gospel of John. It's just on those select passages. And this will be my last sermon in that series. And then Keith will finish up the series next week. But before we get into it, I want to look at a picture I saw online a while ago. And I first looked at it, and I saw a girl with real super skinny legs. And I just thought, oh, that's weird. Uh, and just sort of moved on. But as I was moving on, I just my eye caught the corner of the words, the bottom of the page of the thing I was the page I was looking at that said optical illusion. And if you know me, I kind of really get fascinated by optical illusions. I think there's something that about them explains a lot about how we make decisions in life. And I looked back and I just sort of looked at it and I'm like, what's the optical illusion? And then eventually, you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I eventually found this bag of popcorn here that she's holding that makes her legs look, you know, super, super thin. And, uh, and it took, you know, took a moment to, to catch it. I see some of you just sort of a wave of people getting it. Uh, you in the back, you'll get it in about a minute. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it does explain sometimes the way we make decisions in life, the conclusions we come to. A lot of times we'll, not just photos, but just things that we hear, things that somebody, you know, just observations in life, we make quick conclusions and then just sort of move on, but maybe not realizing that we sort of had an auditory illusion or optical illusion of another kind. And I think that happens with the Bible. Sometimes stories in the Bible or certain teachings of Jesus, we sort of read them and just immediately think, you know, that's weird. I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. And we just sort of move on, just sort of convinced that it's just sort of a self-evident, stupid thing that we don't have to believe. It's just weird. And we just move on. And then also I think the opposite happens. It works both ways. That a lot of times we might be raised in a church or we came to faith in Christ young in our lives. And we, we sort of were adopt, accepting Christian teachings without really taking the time to examine the what and the why of those teachings. And as we mature in life, we never went back to re-examine and reconsider those beliefs. And so even though we've matured, our, our faith in Christ has stayed immature. And I think that happens a, a lot. As a pastor, that, I, I just noticed that not just in myself, but in, in people that, that I talk to. And the good thing about John chapter 8 that we're going to look at today is that it's a really great place to go to to re-examine, reconsider uh, what your beliefs are about Jesus, what you think of, of Jesus. It's, it's super easy because the Jesus that we read in John chapter 8 is either absolutely crazy or he is God. There's really nothing in between whatsoever. And, and it's one of those chapters where Jesus is in the temple courts and he's arguing with the religious leaders of his day called Pharisees. And for lots of reasons, they were sort of self-proclaimed experts in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And Jesus' teachings were very different and a, sort of a threat to their traditions. And we might say their power over the people. And so they're hitting hard against Jesus at the temple in John chapter 8. And Jesus punches back hard too. And so we get a lot of extreme statements from Jesus because he's hitting, he's hitting back hard. We're, we're going to pick up because of time in the middle of the argument. In verse 24, Jesus says to them, I told you 
that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And that's a pretty big statement, right? Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Imagine somebody saying that to you, just some human saying something like that to you. You would for sure think they're crazy. But the thing is, is that it's even weirder than that because there's no he in the original language that John wrote in, the ancient Greek language, the Apostle John wrote in, there's no he here. Our translators put it there just to make grammatical sense out of it. Kind of need a predicate. But there's no predicate. It's just, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I am what would be the question. And and it's odd to Jesus' listeners. We know that they recognize it as an odd way to talk. Because the very next verse, in verse 25, they say, so they said to him, who are you? Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, and who, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. So Jesus said to them, this is verse 28 now, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, and you know Jesus, he's always using these double meaning words, and that lifted up can mean like lots of different things, and Jesus means lots of different things by it. Uh, it's a way of saying when you, because these are going to be the ones that have him crucified. When you crucify me, then you'll know that I am he. But it's also that when they crucify him, it's going to bring about a resurrection and he will be lifted up in that sense and then bring about worship and so he'll be exalted in that sense. And so Jesus is doing all kinds of play upon words, but ultimately here he's talking about when you crucify me, you'll know that I am, then you'll know that I am he. But again, in the Greek, there's, there's no he. So, you know, it could be that Jesus is just talking in a way that kind of says that's me, Uh, That happens sometimes in ancient Greek, but I don't think so. I think what Jesus is doing is that he is sort of going back to the who are you in some of the Bible's greatest hits, the Old Testament in Hebrews, excuse me, in Exodus chapter 3, and the Pharisees would know this. This is like, you know, one of the more popular places in Exodus chapter 3 where Moses sees the burning bush and God speaks to him, and God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and he's going to send Moses to Egypt to free the Israelites from their slavery. And Moses says, who are you? What, what shall I, who shall I tell them is sending me? And so it says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am is how God refers to himself. And then the next verse, God names himself Yahweh, which is the ancient Hebrew verb for he is. God is saying, I am, he is. And it's a very cryptic way of saying what God explains in the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, that I am the source of existence itself. I am the one and only I am. I am the source of all existence. I am the giver of all life. I am the only eternal God. And I am 100% always present everywhere without being any less present anywhere else, because I am infinite. And so Jesus then says something that only somebody who thinks he's the I am would say in verse 51. Imagine somebody, just some human saying this to you. Just to, he says, truly, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He will never see death. It's weird because that's something kind of going back to the chapters before we looked at last week, five and six of John. And we talked last week about Jesus' promises 
to give eternal life. And we said that the language used by far the opposite of eternal life is death, destruction, perishing. And Jesus is saying here that if anyone keeps my word, they will never see death. Imagine somebody saying that. So their response to that in the next verse is utterly rational, completely rational. The Pharisees say this. They say, at this, John says, at him saying that, they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. I mean, this is getting ratcheted up, right? They're calling Jesus demon-possessed. And, you know, it's a very rational thing to say because somebody who's claiming he's the I am is dangerous. Either he's crazy or he's doing something to lead kind of an evil intent. And so they say, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham, remember Jesus was referring back to that passage where God said, I am the God of Abraham. So now Abraham's on their mind. And so they say Abraham, who lived 2,000 years before them, but he's their ancestor and not just literally biologically, but in the faith. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Who do you think you are? Again, this is a passage that's really getting right to the, who are you? Who do you think you are? And so Jesus, now this is getting ratcheted up. They've called them demon-possessed. Before this, Jesus said their father is the devil. You know, it's really getting extreme. And so Jesus says in verse 56, your father Abraham, 2,000 years earlier than when they were talking, Jesus' day, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day He saw it and was glad. Now, just imagine somebody saying this. Somebody that is your father in the faith that lived 2,000 years ago, he he rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, we don't really know what Jesus means by that. He had something in mind, obviously. Maybe he means the birth of Isaac, who was the son of promise that would ultimately lead to the the blessing that that would become Jesus. Uh, But we don't know. But they say this. They say, you're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. I mean, just imagine somebody who thinks that they've seen Abraham, that Abraham rejoiced when he he saw that Jesus was born or saw Jesus' day. And so Jesus says this, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, it would have been amazing enough if Jesus got his grammar right and said, before Abraham was born, I was. But he goes out of his way to get his grammar wrong because now we know he really has been making that point. Before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, Jesus says. That when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know. Things will get in place. You'll know that I am. And before Abraham was born 2,000 years ago, I am. I am the I am. And they knew completely exactly, exactly what Jesus just claimed. So the very next verse, the last verse we're going to look at in verse 59 says, At this, at Jesus saying, before Abraham was born, I am, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. They knew that Jesus just made the claim that he is the I am. They knew that Jesus just told them he's the one who's the source of all existence. He's the one who's the giver of all life. He's the only eternal God. And they, they knew that anybody who claims that, because obviously in their mind he's not, 
is dangerous. And so they, they wanted to, ex- it would be illegal, but they wanted to execute him right there on the spot. Now, I don't know, again, you, we come and we read this, and we read with kind of the hindsight of all this stuff that comes in our life through faith and all these things, and we sort of read it as religious language and we just move on. But I would encourage you not to move on. I would encourage you to examine whether or not you think Jesus is the I am. Because C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, it's kind of a famous quote of his. You've probably heard it before, but it's really something we should look at now. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And here's the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. I really like his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. I really like his teachings about love your neighbor. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, unquote. That is, C.S. Lewis says, the one thing we must not say. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with somebody who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. He would either be so crazy or he would be so evil. He wouldn't be a great moral teacher, that's for sure. Then he goes on and says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, the human embodiment of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Catch this. That the only rational option, rationally speaking... Either everything Jesus said is true or none of it is true. He's crazy. He's evil. You should not let that person influence your thinking at all. There is no good reason to think it would be a good thing to do to follow the teachings of Jesus if he's not God. Because that really would mean, because he claimed he was God, that really would mean he's crazy or incredibly evil. So if you're going, the, the Jesus of John 8, he really would be a lunatic, except if the resurrection's true. In other words, another way to say it, if the resurrection is true, then every, everything Jesus taught is true. He really is God. If it didn't happen, he's not God, and worse, he's dangerous. It's really one or the other, and it's, it's kind of an all-or-nothing thing. See, to me, that, that, that the resurrection is the only thing that explains the New Testament, even just the existence of the New Testament. Because the earliest followers of Jesus, the, it's only the, the resurrected I am Jesus is the only Jesus that would have inspired the kind of radical witness that the earliest followers of Jesus did for the decades after he, after he died and rose from the dead that eventually led to their own death, many of whom were the authors of the, the New Testament. The fact that we have this book is a testament to their being incredibly convinced 
that the Jesus of John 8 is the I am Jesus. They gave their lives for it. Peter was, we know from history, 30 years later, was crucified upside down by the Roman authorities. The apostle Paul was beheaded. So if, if the Jesus of John 8 is true, if the resurrection really happened, and here's what you have to understand. There's no middle ground. There's no place to stop and park somewhere in between. You've got to go all the way to the extreme language Jesus is using in John 8 and say that, what does that mean? That the God who's the source of all existence, the one who's the giver of all life, the one who is the eternal God, became human so that he could allow himself to be beaten and mocked and crucified in order to destroy death and to destroy sin and death forever. It shows you that somehow we might see it differently, but God sees sin and death incredibly heavy, incredibly serious, that it required him to become human and suffer and die on the cross. We don't really have any idea that the way God sees it, the way he does, but it's a big deal. But it also means this, that the crucifixion is, it defines God's character. The crucifixion defines God's character so that when we have these questions about God's character, when we question God because bad things happen in our life, evil's allowed to happen, this world is not the way that we would think it would be if God were real, and the things that happen in our life are things that we wouldn't think a God who loves us, who calls us he calls us his child and he's our father, we wouldn't think that he would allow that to happen in our lives. If God is the God on the cross, then whatever answer to those questions, and they're serious questions, they're real questions, and they shouldn't be minimized, but whatever the answer is, it would have to be consistent with God on the cross. In other words, if the Jesus of John 8 is true and he rose from the dead, we're going to have to learn to live with mystery and not have the answers and yet still have faith in his trustworthiness. And what it means is, what the crucifixion means and the resurrection means and that God became human in the person of Jesus and died and rose from the dead, what it means is, is that you're going to have to live with mystery and all the painful, jagged edges in our life. And there are a lot. They won't be fully explained by any trite religious answer somebody might give you. You know, these trite answers people say, because they don't know what else to say, and I've been there, and you've been there. We say things, but they're just, they're just simple, and they're not, they're not helpful because we know it's a, the answer has to be deeper than that. It's not helpful at all. What we do know is that the ultimate answer is God on a cross suffering. And we're not going to know a lot more answers to that mystery than that. For me now, for me, that's enough. If that's true, for me, that's enough. I, I, I don't know about you. I, I don't know if you think it's rational for you to trust in Jesus with your life. If that's a rational thing to do. John Ortberg, in his really, really good book, it's entitled Faith and Doubt. By the way, it's... Um, I just looked before this sermon because I, I knew I was going to say this. It's on Audible, and he reads it, so I imagine that would be really good. I didn't listen to it on Audible. I wanted to read it because I wanted to highlight things, but, but you could listen to it. It's like four and a half hours long. It would be really, really good read or good listen on Audible, but let me, let me move on. He has this analogy that I think is really helpful. He says, imagine, imagine you're in a 
you're trapped on the fifth floor of a building that's burning, burning out of control. The elevators have already melted. The stairs have already collapsed. And your only escape is to jump out the window of the room you're in, five floors down, onto a small blanket tarp kind of thing that's being held by a group of volunteer firemen. And the blanket looks really small. And you can tell that the, some of the firemen have been celebrating Oktoberfest. <laughs> Would it be rational for you to say, I'm not jumping out of this building? At best, I give these firemen a 50-50% chance of catching me. No, no, I, I, I might die here, but there's no way I'm going to jump out of a building, out of a window five floors up, and trust that they're going to catch me. There's no way I'm going to do that because I don't have 100% proof that they will. Now, it, would it be rational if you said, you know what, I, I, yeah, maybe it's 50-50 at best, but I know that if I stay here, I'm for sure going to die. Jumping out the window is my only shot at living. It's my only shot at life. I don't have 100% proof but I have to make a 100% commitment to leap. And that's my only shot. We all live in a kind of burning building. That's what Jesus is talking about all the time. He's talking about it in John chapter eight. The burning building is our body. Every body is going to die. That's 100% proof. We know that's for a fact. Nobody has to wonder, oh, it's gonna be different this time around with me. Every body is going to die. But, but here's the thing. Your, your, your body is going to die, and the only way to perhaps have an option of life is to make a leap where you don't have 100% proof, but you have to make 100% commitment. Soren Kierkegaard talks about this. He's the Danish philosopher, Christian philosopher in the 1800s. And, and he wrote about the leap of faith. It's often misunderstood by people. Uh, people think that the leap of faith is that you have to ignore the, you have to make this leap of faith and ignore the evidence and abandon reason and embrace uh, wishful thinking and then make that leap. That's not what Kierkegaard was saying at all. What Kierkegaard's saying is that faith in Jesus requires 100% commitment and you won't have 100% proof. If I, if I leap, if I commit, I don't know for sure what's going to happen. I don't know for sure that the resurrection happened, that Jesus is God, that Jesus' promises to me in John 8 are real. I don't know that for sure. But if I don't jump, if I don't leap, if I don't trust, if I don't commit, then I know for sure that I'm going to die one day standing on the edge of a burning building. And, Maybe for some of you, you're still standing on the edge of a burning building because you're stuck in your doubt. And you're kind of ignoring the faith that you do have. I don't know which one's more, faith or doubt in your life, but I can tell you this, that for me, that, 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 that the only option is to trust in Jesus. That's the only rational option. Don't have 100% proof but the only rational option is to trust in Jesus. And here's, here's why. The only other option, however you want to package it one way or the other, the only other option is to, 
is to make this other kind of leap of faith that's kind of leaping into the illusion that your life matters, that anybody in your life matters, that love matters, that, that goodness matters, that charity matters, that decisions of right and wrong matter, that there's any meaning in life that matters. That's all an illusion because, see, if, if you're going to die and everybody in your life is going to die and become nothing, it's a secular narrative, everybody perishes, right? If you're going to die and become nothing on a planet with a history on a planet that's orbiting a sun that astronomers tell us is eventually going to die out and become nothing but just cosmic nothingness. But in a universe that astronomers tell us eventually, I mean, it's going to be a while, but eventually this universe is going to die out and become nothing but cosmic ash. I mean, everything that's ever happened in history, every choice anybody ever made of right and wrong, sacrifice, selfishness, whatever anybody ever did, it's all nothing but cosmic ash eventually. Which means that really it means, if it's going to ultimately mean nothing then, it, it rationally means nothing now. There's nothing now that makes it meaningful when it's going to be nothing then. So you, to live life at all that your life matters, you sort of have to make this leap of irrational faith and embrace an illusion that it does matter when it doesn't. Now, I don't know if that helps you, but it helps me a lot. I got an option where I don't have 100% proof, but it's the rational option that I'll have life. And every other option is not just that I won't, but that nothing matters now. But 25 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says those words, truly, truly, I say to you. See, I think, I think that the best option by far, there's no other person worthy of your trust. Any, there's no other idea worthy of your trust than Jesus. Because enough evidence is there to believe that it really did happen. Something happened, and it really is true. And, and that Jesus really is the I am that he, say, he said he was. And you can take that leap. And you can trust him 100% without 100% proof. Let me pray. God, I thank you that you didn't leave us. You became human and you suffered, and you are the God on the cross, and that defines your character. We have all these questions that we don't understand, but we can at least say that we know that you are the God on the cross. You are ultimately the one who has brought us and bringing us into the story of life. We don't have all the answers. We don't have all the proof, but we can trust you 100% because you are the God on the cross, and you rose from the dead. Amen. Would you stand to receive God's blessing from what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Listen to these words, and I leave it as a blessing for you. May God make shine in your heart the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great week.